Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 226 of the Chills of Will podcast. Pleasure today to be speaking to Andres and Ordorica. Andres is a queer Latinx writer based in Edinburgh, that is Edinburgh, Scotland. Drawing on his family's immigrant history and third culture upbringing, his writing maps, his writing maps the journey of diaspora and unpacks what it means to be from ni de aquí ni de allá, which is neither here nor there. He's the author of the poetry collection, At Least This I Know, and the novel How We Name the Stars. He's been shortlisted for the Morley Lit Prize, the Mosirucharan Su Prize, and the Saltire Society's Poetry Book of the Year. In 2024, he was selected as one of the Observer's 10 Best Debut Novelists. Good morning slash evening. How are you today? I'm all right. Yeah, it's, uh, it, yes, it is evening here in Edinburgh, and I'm looking outside my big window of my living room, and the sun is setting quickly. <laughs> okay, and I definitely mispronounced the uh, the Scottish uh, city. Gosh <laughs> darn it. I, I, should know, I should know better. You know, it was, wasn't one that I asked about. I thought I had it. I was too confident. This overconfidence thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on the, on the book, The Observer's 10 Best Debut Novelist. It's kind of crazy to think that this is your debut novel. I was telling you before we started recording, it's it's an incredible read. It's incredibly profound, and definitely I've not stopped thinking about it since the book closed, and I and I won't for a long, long time. How's it feel, kind of in the? I want to say it's been maybe two, three weeks since it came out. I think it will be three weeks tomorrow that it's since it's come out in the U.S. Um, it's been so surreal and strange. I was very fortunate that I was able to go over to the U.S. on the East Coast mm -hmm. for a small book tour um, around the pub date. And it was just, yeah, a bit of a whirlwind. And the reception has just been, you know, so lovely. Um, and then, yeah, I've returned to Edinburgh and, you know, I'm kind of like, uh, yeah, seeing things sort of here and there and then preparing that the US edition or the UK edition mm -hmm. uh, comes out in July. And then I've been working, uh, I'm in the middle of like the final edits uh, of novel two. Oh and God. so my brain is in like a very strange space. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how we name the stars. Is that almost like in the rearview mirror in some ways where you almost where you ha feel like you have to put it there in order to work on the second novel and, and finish it? Um. Yes and no. I was very fortunate that I had like the insane idea of wanting to get through novel number two before novel one came out. And this, it, I won't say it's advice because that would be sort of unfair to him to say it was advice, but I, I kind of was inspired. I was lucky enough to interview Douglas Stewart when his sophomore novel came out um, and it was sort of uh, ahead of what was going to be a very big tour throughout the UK and particularly in Scotland because he had never been able to come uh, for for um, 
Shugi Bain because of the pandemic. So anyway, I was really like just my mind was blown when Douglas Stewart told me that he had finished writing Young Mungo before Shugi Bain came out. And it just like I did not understand how that was possible, especially sort of like the the um the trajectory that he had and continues to have. And it just was like this eye-opening sort of moment of realizing like as a writer to try and get through at least the majority of a draft or two drafts of a sophomore novel before readers have too many eyes on your debut uh, can be very helpful. And for me, at least, like I didn't want to get caught up in what people thought I should write next. And so, yeah, it's funny, but like I feel so deeply invested in Daniel and Sam as characters. And so, yes, but it is that funny thing of like, sort of as readers, you know, uh, a reader's uh, sort of perception of, of my writing will, of course, be coming through this, this debut novel. But yeah, to, to hold space for, for those two characters while trying to sort of make space for other characters that I am falling in love with and deeply invested in is like a very funny sort of liminal state, I guess. <laughs> yes. Oh, that is so interesting. Well, yeah, you, you, I know that you have a poetry background, and I think only poets say liminal, right? So there it is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah what does it even mean? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was mentioned, it was featured at least once in the, how we named the, uh, named the stars, right? I believe, I want to say. That's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. I wanted to ask about, you're talking about, like, you think that, you know, readers might have some expectations, you know, it's human nature. Do you, I mean, is this a totally different novel, the second one? Or do you feel like there's a lot of similarities? Um, I think it feels a part of a similar world. I would say, though, it's funny, the character or the main character of, of what I hope will be my sophomore effort um, is a few years older than Daniel. And I think by virtue, maybe slightly more jaded. Whereas I think what has been really lovely about sort of the reception I've been getting with this debut is that I think there's just a very beautiful earnestness in Daniel and like a, a, a true desire of, of figuring out who he is. And I think what I'm trying to do with this second novel is really explore through particularly a queer lens like okay you've made it through the proverbial closet you've come out and like what if life actually isn't like this grand there's not this grand change mm -hmm. and like how does one move forward in their life and so it's sort of set at the end of or in the final years of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and uh, but written from like the perspective of uh, a, a, a young man growing up as a military brat and kind of all of that and sort of what religious dogma, like this influence of, of that version of machismo. Um, so yeah, I would say, but it's still, I want to say, very joyous, and it has a love story, and there's no death, which is nice, <laughs> which is not a sort of, uh, I it's so funny. I think, like, I don't ever really get worried about um, spoilers, but I have to remember, like, I, during, like, this, uh, the publicity for the that debut, remember. that telling people, that is not a spoiler when I say, like, Sam is dead, like, that yes. happens on page three. It's yes. literally what the first things that Daniel, the narrator, says to the reader right. um but yeah i wanted to i wanted to kind of sort of like live in that sort of same 
uh, world view of like, what is it to grow up? I wanted to just sort of kind of come. So whereas Daniel's starting university life, this next book is kind of at the close of it. And like, what then happens next? Right. Well, just in the little time talking to you, I would, I would not call you a brat. So, but it sounds like possibly, possibly you and you have a military uh, background as well. I'd just love to know about, about growing up and particularly your, your relationship with the written word. Were you the you know the kid who's always at the library? How did how did that work? Yeah, I was as like yeah exactly that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I loved the library. I loved library at school, like especially in elementary school. You know that was some of my favorite uh, memories. Like during the week would be when we could go to the library and like I remember. And it's funny now that like it's just like jogged my memory and I've not thought about it forever. But I remember. When um, so yeah, I grew up as a military brat, and I, I spent most of my life overseas, and and so I remember when we were living in Turkey. So this is in my final years of elementary school. My mom volunteered at my school at the library. I wonder if she even remembers this. And I remember, yeah, like I'd go to the school library and I'd get to see my mom. I think my love for the written word came from my love of storytelling. And I always say my mom was the first person to introduce me to the art of storytelling. She was, uh, is a prolific storyteller. I always think like, if only my mom kind of sort of felt this urge to write, I think my mom could be a brilliant writer because she's an amazing storyteller. Mm -hmm. And I just grew up sort of so hungry for my mom's stories of growing up in Northern California as the daughter of, of immigrants um, from Mexico and just sort of all of the, the kind of cinematic beauty that that brought and sort of the strangeness of having to grow up very fast and, you know, having to translate on behalf of my grandparents and kind of do a lot of like the life admin in their house. And, and, and then she would tell me like what it was like when they would go back to Mexico, uh, because my, on my mom's side, all of my family in Mexico comes from the north. So it's similarly to Daniel's uh, family in, in the novel. So Chihuahua in the north of Mexico. And it was just, yeah, my mom and, and my mom's encouragement and my dad as well of, of my love of reading, you know, my dad is such a, an athlete and, and I, I, on his side of the family, I come from like a family, uh, 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 a group of people that just love sport and being Northern California, you know, they love the 49ers and they love the Giants. I am not an athletic person in the light in the slightest. And I think though my I really appreciate especially my father kind of fighting against all these stereotypes that Mexican men kind of have to face of machismo. My dad was just so encouraging of my love of, of books, you know, and so whereas um, my older brother would like ask for like new Jordans or things like that around his birthday. Um, I like this is aging me. I would ask for uh, gift cards to Borders Bookstore, and what like there's that? like a, I know there's like oh Gen Z, they're like they're like I don't know what that is. That oh Borders Bookstore at the Galleria Mall in Roseville, California, oh was with like, that. It's just where I really fell in love, I think. I, like When I was at the age of 10 or 12 and we would go back to, to Northern California for the summer, when my parents would drive us to Roseville, 
and like I could walk the aisles of the Borders bookstore there, I think, and like spend my own money or like the money that people gave me for my birthday. Like that, I think, is when I really, really, really fell in love with the idea of books and like just scanning the shelves of at that age, it would have been like middle grade and YA and just like hungering for like more which is so funny because I grew up in such a beautiful way where I got to see so much of the world but like sure. books sort of presented an, uh, an even more infinite possibility of where life could take you so I think that that's where sort of the seeds began to be sown of of this desire to attempt a writing career oh wow yeah, my, my seven-year-old and my five-year-old just received some uh, Barnes & Noble gift cards. They'll, they'll probably be going to the Galleria. They're right around yeah. the Galleria there. And, you know, it's tough now because everything, so much of it is toys and other stuff. And it's like, no, yeah. let's just go to the books. Books only, books only, right? But, hey, and I love the little, uh, I'm actually a Northern California Dodger fan, but, like, the little Brandon <laughs> Belt reference and all that, like, for the, yeah. the real fans, man. <laughs> Early in the book, I think it was. Yes, yes. <laughs> 19-year-old Daniel, who we'll talk about, of course, in the book, the, the narrator, he talks about reading, like, um, Mar looking for Marquez, one of my probably top two, three of all time, Sandra Cisneros' house on Mango Street, and saying, you know, I'm 19, I'm finally, like, seeing myself in a book. Mm -hmm. Any any parallels there? I wonder just about who were some of the reader, uh, some of the writers in writing that really got you pumped up? Yeah, you know, when I was, it's so funny because what sort of drove me to want to study English in my undergrad, I did an English and drama double major, were sort of like the canonical writers, you know, I think that we're in a great age of decolonizing curriculum and, and kind of uh, really expanding like what, what it means to read the canon and who has often been sort of missed out on being included. But like writers who made me want to write, like the, you know, I say in my note to the reader that this is not a memoir and I'm not Daniel, but he contains so many elements of me. The writer that really made me want to go on and study English literature was like Daniel Nathaniel Hawthorne, like reading The Scarlet Letter was just such a, a, a formative experience for me as as a a, um, a, a literary scholar if sure. you will but yeah around that time like Zora Neale Hurston's uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God was like a revelatory experience and then in my undergrad you know um Christina Garcia's Dreaming in Cuban um uh, uh, because I studied drama, like a lot of play texts were really influential too, like Tony Kushner's Angels in America, Susan Laurie Park's Top Dog, Underdog. But like to the reference that you speak of about Sandra Cisneros, mm -hmm. funnily enough, I didn't read Cisneros until I was 23. Mm -hmm. I had just moved to San Antonio, uh, where my parents oh. now live. Um, and I was working for the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center and I used to run the, um, their museum store. And so I was doing like a stock take and they have like an amazing, um, they now have a bookstore, like they revived the bookstore because I think the bookstore they had was like uh, something that was really sort of prominent in the 90s and then it kind of went away. But they held on to like the stock of books and, and now um, new staff have come over and revived it and, and I've been back and it's amazing. But anyway, 
I remember like they gifted me a copy of House on Mango Street and it was just this like brilliant experience of like realizing oh my god I'm 23 I've just gone through an English undergrad I've just did a, a, a master's in, in writing for the stage in London you know I, I, I like have this deep love of, of reading and writing and at 23 I felt like it was like the first time I actually read a character that felt like as close to me as possible and even saying that it is a very different experience you know I didn't grow up in a big city like it's set in Chicago um, but like to, to have someone who is Mexican American and writing in a way that sort of felt so in symbiosis with my understanding of my cultural background it was just this brilliant brilliant experience um, but yeah, I think that kind of introduction into sort of the the Latinx Hispanic American canon happened actually after my undergrad. Oh man, I'm trying to think. It, you know, you know, you have some. Sometimes you have these. Well, rarely, but you have these incredible reading experiences where it's almost like you remember where you were when you read the. <laughs> yeah. And I I wish I remember. I was I was trying to look up the name. Maybe the opening story of Woman Hauling Creek. Mm. You, you get, and it's the one where. It's like a, the the name is like a like an indigenous name. This this guy just like a total like trickster. He tricks the girl and he gives himself like this like mythical name. Which is just mm. one of those, I, I can tell you exactly where I was when I read it. And it was just like, dang, wow, right? Does Saunders Cisneros know that you're a fan? No, and you know I've never like had the chance to meet her. Um, I follow her on social media, um, and like I'm, I'm deeply in love with her poetry as well. Um, I've had my go at trying to get into uh, Macondo, the, oh, yeah. the the writers. Uh, fellowship that she uh, founded and runs. I, I haven't landed it yet, but you know, maybe I, I'm holding out one day. Like I, and I don't want to think. I want it to be like this magical kind of, and I'm sure it will feel like that when the opportunity comes. But um, you know, in, until then, I'm just so grateful to have her words. The key word is yet, right? <laughs> yet. Oh my gosh. Macondo is from Marquez, right? Yes, it's like yes. It's fictional city and everything. Shame to admit, I've never read. I've never read Hundred Years of Solitude, which I was reminded of when. Well, we'll get to it. But when Daniel talks about writing, you know, this book in such like a fevered pitch, like seven days, eight mm -hmm. days, you know, Marquez supposedly wrote Hundred Years of Solitude in like forty-eight hours. Oh um, wow! I think the story's been debunked, but he was supposedly like he was in Mexico City or going to Mexico City on a vacation, and all of a sudden he had this idea and he had to write it down. Great for favorite <laughs> writing. I, I think I think it's kind of been debunked. But are you more into short stories, his novels, all of the above? Do you know what? I've never read his novels. I've only read his novellas. Yeah, and that's why. Yeah, and like I feel. Do I have a copy of? I definitely at my parents have a copy of Love in the Time of Cholera, but in the original Spanish. And my Spanish, I don't think is good enough to take on that whole thing. But uh, no, but it was his novellas are what I fell in love with. I think Leaf Storm, which I reference in the book, mm -hmm. I just found it like so just moving and, and just so well crafted. Right. As we get into 2024, I wonder who you're reading more recently, more contemporary, whether they're, you know, whether they directly influence you or not. 
Yeah, um, who am I reading? I have been, so um, the great Scottish poet Jackie Kay, uh, I am chairing her in April and she um, was our previous macker, which is a Scots word for a, laure a poet laureate. Um, okay. So she's, she was the National Poet Laureate um, before Kathleen Jamie took it over. Um, and so I have been, um, like Jackie Kay has written prolifically and like so I've been reading many of her older uh, poetry collections um, and then yeah the book that I can't stop talking about that comes out in April both in the US and the UK is Griffin Hansberry's Some Strange Music Draws Me In which is like one of the most beautiful books that I've ever read I keep telling people like it's gonna be like my 2024 read like I don't think anything else is going to top it it is just this masterful um uh whereas like I think my novel is about like I mean it is his is about a coming of age but it's written in like a dual perspective in such a profound way so it's about a trans man who is nearing 40 who has returned to like his small hometown after his mother passes away and he's like dealing with her affairs and like him and his sister are deciding if they're going to sell the house or not and like going through all of like this childhood memorabilia um and like Hansberry is like is just so brilliant in his decision because he decides to write half of the story from the perspective of the narrator's pre-transition self mm -hmm. so you know being assigned female at birth and growing up as, as a young girl in this small town and it's just very interesting from like this perspective of like a millennial and like dealing with like Gen Z and like their relationship to queerness versus like, you know, someone older or slightly older and how we talk about gender and sexuality. And it's just so, but at the core of it, it's just like this really beautiful ode to like survival and kind of finding oneself. It is just stunning. I honestly was on my couch in the final like 10 pages just crying like yeah. just dark terribly I mean not dark like just sure. ugly ugly convulsive tears and but the ending is just so joyous and happy and it's one of those endings that like you I just don't think anyone could see coming and I just think when a writer is able to do that it's just so profound and so brilliant um so that has been really uh yeah one that I think I'm going to continue to sustain for however many 10 months we have right. left of this year. Oh my gosh. Wow. What a uh, ringing endorsement, huh? <laughs> I know. Man, you should do the trailer or something like that. Some of these book, book releases have trailers. You should do the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> and you were talking about the, uh, the poet laureate. So it wasn't, it, it was a peaceful takeover, right? You said took over. I'm like, it wasn't like a, well, yeah, yeah, in the same way, you know, and the no, yes. I mean, I was very sad because Jackie Kay was my first poet laureate uh -huh. moving here to Scotland, and and um, she was the first black poet laureate in Scotland, first uh, like non-white Scottish, and yeah. and it's just but it's like brilliant, and like grew has grown up, and like her influence, especially for. Uh, black and POC writers living in Scotland is just so immense but like it just she's just such a stunning brilliant mind like the way she sees the world and I've been fortunate enough to um, be in her presence numerous times and it, it's just one of those writers that you feel like 
anytime you're around, when you walk away, you just feel like life makes that much more sense. Like you've been given this gift of, of just an expanded worldview or an expanded understanding of like, what does it mean to be human and just move through the world? Mm. Would that be spelled K-A-Y-E, your last name? Uh, K-A-Y. K-A-Y, okay. I bet you actually leave positive um, endorsements on Goodreads as opposed to like just, man, the way that you Do you know what? I don't actually like deal with Goodreads at all. Like it just is like um, the Wild West to me. It was actually funny. I saying that I did update my profile today, but like I've, I've yet to do the successful thing. Like I don't know if um, if you write, but like being like trying to get your author's profile set up on Goodreads is like harder, I think than like opening up a bank account or like trying to get like your original birth certificate. And like, so I've given up, but like, no, I think it's great that like there exists like this huge community. And you know, I'm grateful that right now I, I have a pretty good Goodreads score for both <laughs> my collection and my novel. But like, it also is just unwieldy to me. And like, I think like I, I'm one of those people like if you pay me, I will write a book review or like I share with friends or, you know, especially things that I really find like I want to sort of shout about. But like, yeah, I'm kind of I don't know. I, I'm overly cautious about what I put out there in terms of like saying things about other people's work. And so I just think that is sort of antithetical to the purpose of Goodreads. So it's better that I'm just not there. <laughs> That is hilarious. Oh, my gosh. The book, of course, is, as we talked about, has been out for, I think, January 30th in the United States, and we're talking on February 19th. It's called How We Name the Stars. And I'd love to know about um, maybe some Siege, which I think maybe you've talked about a little bit, and also that incredible epigraph, which maybe the epigraph and the Siege are related, but from uh, Waiting for Godot. Godot. So. Mm. Yeah, just some just some ideas about kind of what led you to to write the book. Was it you know is this something that's been germinating for forty years? I don't think you're even forty years old uh, for a while. Uh, I know you're not. <laughs> uh, or is it some? Is it a lot of people COVID books. I don't know. Uh, some seeds for the book. Um, it it was um, yeah. So all in, it took me about six years to write. I the sort of germination of it happened in in my uh, sort of the latter bit of my 20s so i'm i'm turning 35 this summer right. um i i think yeah i was sort of in this very nostalgic uh kind of positionality as i was facing like my 30s and kind of reflecting on my undergraduate life and and sort of also, I think, yeah, as I was nearing my 30s, like reflecting on a particular loss that shaped the novel and thinking about this person who I'd known since, you know, my high school days and was a really dear friend and how that person, you know, um, had not seen their 20s at all. You know, like, like Daniel, um, I, I lost this friend uh, at 19. And so I think, yeah, all of that was kind of sort of bubbling away. And I wanted to like try, I had tried my hand at actually a novel. So this was not my first attempt at a novel, but I had 
I think I'd struggle to kind of land where what to do with the story. And and my first attempt at writing a novel, I think it was just the exercise of of writing for that long. Whereas this was actually, I felt like I had something to say of the world, and what I wanted to say was like a reflection on loss. But I didn't want it to be memoir, and I didn't want it to be too close to the bone. So I made the decision. That I wanted it to be a love story, but not in the traditional sense. I wanted to sign. I wanted to see a relationship blossom, but also I wanted to explore what would it look like for a character if both their first love and first real loss came from the same root.、Um, and yeah, that was sort of like the genesis and and. Yeah, you know,、um, I I I say that like the characters of Daniel and Sam were pretty much have have maintained like a continuity from like the first sort of few、uh, chapters written six years ago to to the final version. My editor at Ten House and I sort of sent off to a、uh, mm. to the printers, but that. What? Yeah. So, like the the bones have stayed the same, and it was sort of the muscle behind it that has, or around it even, has kind of shifted and and reshaped itself. And so, it took many versions before landing on the narrative style of of speaking to Sam and writing in that se- second person style.、Um, But yeah, I think to answer your question, I sometimes I, I waffle.、No. Um, but like to try to be succinct is yeah, the 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 genesis was wanting to explore love and loss because to me that is just those are two themes that continue to maintain themselves as part of my thematic sort of.、Um, Ouvoir, you know,、um, like especially even with my poetry collection and. Yeah, I think for me, there's just something really fascinating about how, across different cultures and societies, we deal with how we talk about love and loss. And and for me, you know, having that kind of also bleed into a coming of age story just presented really interesting possibilities、um, from a from a writing perspective. Well, just just to make it clear too, I mean, just. Uh, such a good read, and and sorry for the little pause here, but remind us, you know, so talk, so Tin House. What are some good places to to buy the book? I mean, we can buy it anywhere, but do you have any particular recommendations? Um. Well, uh, it, it was, uh, uh, it is、uh, a Barnes and Noble discovery pick of the month, so they've been great to me. Um. But you know, I always say, like, please, if you can, and and you have access to it, a local independent bookstore, like that, is always like a great shout. Um. But even if you know, if if you're not in a position to buy, like, I think sometimes people feel like are ashamed of using like their libraries versus buying a book, especially. Especially like a book that has recently come out, but like you know, I will always advocate for libraries, and I think you know, to like to sort of、um, demystify it for people. Like、right. writers earn money from the libraries, you know, like a library. Like there are many great, especially in the UK. There's the author licensing and copyrights.
society like I earn royalties through libraries and like libraries are so fundamentally important to any functioning society yes. so you know yes please support and buy it if you can but if not go to your local library and ask them to buy it and that's what libraries have budgets for um, but uh, however you choose to consume it um, I'm just grateful for readers you know there are there's a, a, a wealth of books that anyone could choose from. So to, to sort of choose to spend time with my writing is just such a blessing for me. Mm. Tin House, of course, they, they have it very reasonably priced. Um, <laughs> such a great book. And, you know, I, I would assume bookshop.org would be a good. Yes. Yep. Online, right? Helping with independent. This is way, 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 way oversimplifying and, and not doing full justice. But, you know, in some ways, this idea of talking about kind of themes of the book or like a, a, a through line, but just like, is it better to have loved and lost? Right. And again, that's. Mm. That's very simplistic for a book that's so complex and detailed and so interesting and so reflect reflection inducing for mm. sure. It's 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 a book that like you talked about sitting there on the couch, um, you know, crying your eyes out. It's like it's gonna make you uh feel for sure. And there's definitely definitely tears to come and happiness and all that. I'm thinking of like uh, Romeo and Juliet, which like like line six or something like that, we know what's gonna happen with the star crossed lovers, right? Mm. I wonder about your um about your your decision to to say Sam is dead within you know like you talked about very very early in the book yeah that sort of decision uh was both pragmatic and kind of a slightly um poetic if you will pragmatic in the sense that because landing on the second person narrative device i thought it was important to contextualize for the reader that Sam was who Daniel was speaking to or writing to even. Um, but that I didn't want to try to like, uh, I didn't want any trickery. I didn't want it to be like, oh, he's speaking to Sam. And then in the final pages, we learn that Sam is dead. Like I just thought like that would distract from, from what Daniel, the decision making that Daniel has brought Daniel to in very uh, sort of erratically write um, this this story, this letter, whatever it is, um, you know, within sort of eight days or so. And so for me, yeah, it's sort of saying that from the get go, I think just is it meant that I I didn't feel like I was tricking the reader because that was not the kind of point of of this novel. Um, but then also I think, yeah, like uh, there is just something really profound and jarring like that, you know, after um, uh, every chapter opens with a, with a diary entry from another character that you sort of figure out who it is later on, but that Daniel's first narrative moment is are the words sam's dead and kind of like what that sort of unveils very quickly and i think within it kind of in in those three words holds so much like weight that you kind of begin to understand why this character has felt compelled to very manically write the story obviously the name of the book with the stars in early on and i I got a little misty eye because, you know, my daughter's almost eight and she's kind of moved on from oxalotls. But I don't know if you know, oxalotls yeah. were the thing for in the last couple of years for like the, the, the little girl set, the little kid set, the little dolls and everyone's all about oxalotl. Yeah. Oxalotl that, right? 
Yeah, I think like, I mean, I don't, don't I want to say this because this will be there in perpetuity. Um, I think I have some of my family members like have illegally brought them over, but like, not, that's all. Like, so it's like, yes, the obsession, it seems, especially in the US, is like runs deep. Uh, oh, it really does. But, yeah. Well, thank you for that because we were, I mean, if it was them or whomever, we got to see a few in our local, wholesome like, California, whatever, you know. So. Oh, man. But, um, But, you know, just the idea that obviously it has the, is it Aztec roots? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, uh, yes, I, so I think you're referring to the, uh, the prologue and, Yes. uh, yes, in which uh, is the only time we hear from Sam, so the, the love interest of the novel. Um, and yes, and he's sort of just, and yes, and so it's a scene and it's not giving anything away, but it, because we hear from Sam, uh, the reader will get to revisit it um, a later on and, and, and not the exact scene, but Yes. the setting in which Daniel will go on to narrate um, this very particular trip that him and Sam go on. And yes, and so they're looking at the stars and, and Sam is sort of describing to Daniel what constellation he would, he would name him after. And he starts with sort of within the, uh, the Greek and Roman tradition of, of Cetus and then offers him the name um, from the Aztec mythology. And yeah, I think, you know, it was... Um, One, it was, yes, I, I just love this idea, like, uh, like Sam, I was kind of like a, a very nerdy uh, uh, kid in high school and had this fascination with like constellations and um, especially sort of Greek and Roman mythology and like my honors English ninth grade. Um, and then, yeah, I think, you, yeah, and sort of writing to like the, uh, the Aztec tradition, I think was just, it showed what I hope for readers is an evident kind of like a motive care and kindness of Sam that will be demonstrated through Daniel's retelling like that in this prologue Sam goes out of his way to like give Daniel like this cultural reference point of like why he says this constellation is the one that he would assign him um, and it seems very true to, to Sam's character that he would want to sort of go out of his way to to contextualize it as much as possible because he, he you know um, but like the idea of like stars and I think you know how Sam ends the prologue is this idea of like for generations for for millennia even you know different cultural ethnic groups different civilizations have used stars and storytelling as like a means of of you know, passing on moral tales, passing on bits of, of cultural history, um, bits of sort of religion or spirituality. And, and, you know, I think it's just like brilliant that like, you know, these stars are these things that have been dead for millions of years and we actually are seeing them millions upon millions of years after their death and and even generations from a thousand years ago we're also seeing stars millions of years after their death but even in death they hold such importance and meaning and 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 even in in the heritage of like um seafaring in terms of being able to align oneself to stars and know which direction they're going and i think it just felt like this very apt 
metaphor of what it is to try to move through the world and and find oneself and that really being Daniel and Sam's journey in the novel and then after Sam's passing that you know he shared this language with Sam about stars and stargazing something that he admits to Sam very early on that he knows nothing about or knew nothing about you know he he'd never spent really time with uh, uh, to learn anything and and this person who is no longer there has given him something that he can carry forward um and so yeah i don't know like if that answered a question or just sort of like spoken to maybe my uh <laughs> my decision making but yeah i think um for me, it's just very beautiful. I have to admit, though, that like, and I've been asked this is is like, oh, you know, it's just such a beautiful title, and it makes so much sense in terms of all of the references and like the motifs of of stars and constellations. Um, it was not the original title in the in the slightest. <laughs> it was something that actually was pointed out to me by my editor Elizabeth. Um, when we were sort of searching for a, a a good sort of title that we thought you know would 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 speak to people or draw readers in, and it was yeah pointed out to to Elizabeth and sort of the larger Tin House team of like you know you do talk about stars a lot and like it's very important in the prologue like maybe we should kind of move that direction in terms of uh, coming up with a title and it was just like a really funny moment as a writer I think often you know when working on very large projects like a poetry collection or a novel or even like a, a, a non-fiction book you know you spend so much time you're way too close to it that it's very yeah, funny to have these moments where someone are, is able to come in and it seems like they're just swooping in right. and like they point out this thing right. that should be very obvious to you especially as you the creator and then you're kind of like oh yeah you're right I do talk a lot about stars like maybe that would be a good thing to think about <laughs> Well, it, it obviously works so well. I mean, when, just now when you're talking, I mean, it opens up so many things for me when you're talking about this idea that the stars are a million years old, they're dead, mm. we're seeing mm -hmm, them, but just mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. but just the, you know, the light, there's so much about light and darkness, especially in that prologue and early on, mm. dark, I'm quoting directly, quote, darkness is scary and profound. And mm. I think it was, I think it was the, like an image of, of Sam, but it was like this idea that in a completely dark room, but also lights it up. So it's just, yes. right? This idea of equal light, equal darkness, while it's incredibly dark, you know, in his death, it's also, there's also an incredible amount of light that he continues to give. Right above me, if, if you can see, I have that poster of Dancing with Butterflies. That's Reina Grande. Yes. Right? Yes. Who's a, who was in Southern California when I was there, now up in Northern California. So she was, she's so awesome. She was able to come speak to us. We read the book um, Across 100 Mounds of Hers, my students. And I, I was telling them again and again, because the main uh, the main love interest is Sebastian Luna. I was, I was like, oh, you know, there's so much in the book about, you know, about two sides of each person and the moon and two sides of blah, blah, blah. And I, I was like, I knew what I was talking about. You know, I asked, them, asked her straight up. I was like in front of the students, like, oh, so Sebastian Luna, some that's symbolic of this and that. She's like, no, it's just a name I liked. <laughs> but, so, you, yeah. so, you, so you scared me with De La Luna. I'm like, oh, no, oh, no. Am I going to read too much into this? <laughs> no, yes, that too, yes, that was, that is definitely, um, well, I mean, to be fair, it's like a, a, an homage to my, my mom's side of the family. It's my mom, my, my, grand, my maternal grandmother's maiden name. Okay, cool. Um, and obviously, sort of like a, 
very patriarchal society. Like, you know, mm. these beautiful last names get lost when there's no son. And my, my grandmother was one of, I want to say, eight daughters, and there was no oh. son. So that was a, a last name that uh, by convention has sort of passed away away. I mean, I, I have one of my mom's sisters, um, my youngest cousin, it, it is her middle name now, which is a beautiful mm, sort okay. of way of, of keeping it. But yes, in terms of like this idea of, of like, how you so these things can live beyond us. And even Daniel has this point when he's in Mexico, and he talks about that, of, of what we choose to keep with us mm. and what things we let die away. And, and so yes, by having that, uh, as, as Daniel's last name was sort of my uh, my nod to my maternal grandmother of, of kind of uh, immortalizing that side of the family. So cool. Quote from the book as well. Quote, what hurt the most was forgetting your voice. You talk about it's, mm. it's, um, Oh God, epistolary, right? In that way, it's, it's yes. the second person is you. It's a letter. It's a book. It's like you said, maybe not even sure yourself, right? It's, yeah, right. Yeah, and like, and, and I'm I'm so honest with you. It's like not me trying to be like, oh, he's like doing the writer thing. Like, I don't know. I never landed on a decision, and I don't really want to land on a decision. Yeah. Um, you know, and and I think that kind of is like the brilliant joy of crafting story that even as uh, uh, as the novelist, I don't have all of the answers, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. Is it a book? Is it a, a letter? Will he go on to do something with it? Will he burn all the pages? You right. know, is it written on his computer? Is it in a notebook? I don't, I don't, I, I, I never allowed myself to kind of get into that nitty gritty of it. Um, and, yeah, and in a way, it's like this wonderful thing because it presents just infinite possibilities if mm. I ever choose to return to this character of, sure. of answering that yeah. at another point or never answering it at all. <laughs> right. Like Daniel, I was overthinking. I'm like, okay, I just, he probably wrote it in the journal that his grandfather gave him, but there wouldn't be enough pages, so maybe it started, you know. Like, oh, but that makes right? sense. That's smart. Right? Yeah. Oh, I gosh. Know. I don't know. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to... Uh, maybe maybe insult some of your uh uk people around you but i'm gonna say that i like your book better than i like shakespeare okay. yes shakespeare's my yeah shakespeare's one of those, of course you have to give great credit and just you know not my cup of tea mm. whatever right but but the idea that you know romeo and juliet which i've taught before and it kind of took me a while to realize like it's it's written in such a short period of time right Mm. And there's like, like as in the time span of the book. Yes. Yeah. Right? Like and a lot of chaotic stuff happens yes. very quickly. Oh my yeah. god! Oh my god! Right. So there's, there's so much, there's so much greatness in your book that that you know he's 19 and just how everything is so um, everything is so hyperbolic. That's maybe not even too mm. extreme. Chaotic when when you're 19, everything hurts. Yeah, right? I like that you use the word hyperbolic because like yeah. for sometimes people might think, oh, is that like pejorative? But no, like I think exactly. at that age, everything is so much more pronounced. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and there is a bit of of uh, hyperbolic. You know, I think um, to have like this deep urge so quickly after after experiencing this immense grief that mm -hmm. Daniel decides 
that he's going to retell the story in a letter or novel or or if he's even just speaking aloud in a room to to sam um you know it's a bit of like a, a like it's very reactionary it's very like yeah. ott as the youth <laughs> might say um but uh yeah, you know, but it's funny you say that because I actually, I do love Shakespeare. Like, I, Merchant of Venice and um, As You Like It are two of my most favorite texts. Uh, I just think, you know, As You Like It. And it's funny because in, a, in like, two, like two versions before I signed with my agent, mm -hmm. um, I, uh, there was like, these scenes where Daniel is, uh, <laughs> it's so funny to talk, like think about like bits that are not in this version of the novel, oh, but yeah. like when Daniel was real, is like early on in, in, in sort of dealing with pining after Sam, he was like working on an essay on As You Like It. And oh, like wow. in this version that didn't make it to the final uh, printed uh, pages, um, how did I have it? It was like that he was like uh, really deep into the text of reading As You Like It and he imagined himself going around um, Cayuga's campus sort of uh, stapling love letters like Orlando does with Rosalind in the uh -huh. forest. Um, so there was like seedlings. I think, you know, in a lot of ways Shakespeare brilliantly writes characters that pine after each other. Okay. And like that's really, I think, a brilliant, like that is especially very true, I think, to like early adulthood before you have like the language and the courage to just be like very forthright and clear with mm. someone you mm. just spend so long like um uh kind of hypothesizing this version of life and never yes, actually yes, yes. getting around to say what you want to say <laughs> mm, so true there's I want to say maybe she's British. There's a a newish book out about Shakespeare and I think kind of more about my whole thing is is it's just a whole different aside or tangent but just the idea of like teaching shakespeare yeah but, yeah i right i have absolved myself of what it is to teach young people shakespeare <laughs> yeah. um, um yes um, but just but, like uh, i think about about love like the book is a lot about i think like kind of like reimagining shakespeare and how to you know how to deal with like a lot of the i mean problematic like ways like you know people mm, of color are treated mm, and just kind yeah of like yeah reading. but i think in the end this writer's like he's really good <laughs> you know yeah. and, and here's how you can do it but that's for that's for a different day but um but yeah i mean shoot like romeo and juliet they basically kill you know they're they, they're <laughs> dead they're dead over one one night knowing each other come on take it easy right well at least yours is a year <laughs> right yes <laughs> and, and they don't kill each other oh, sorry, so sorry, that's thank you thank you for making that clear i'm sorry <laughs> oh my god um, oh my but, god uh yes no yes i think in uh you know yes and and in the same way that i think there's like a deep earnestness and over-the-topness yes. of, of Romeo and Juliet. I think there is that with, with, with Daniel and Sam, but yes, I think, you know, that kind of, um, uh, that building's Roman, which was not even something mm. like I attempted to do, but is how I've been told, like, th this also slots into that heritage of, of sure. the literary device of, like, a, you know, a year-long sort of watching, particularly uh, a, a young man, um uh grow and develop um at times they're a bit like daniel's a bit saccharine a bit earnest but you know i think allowing to give their story a full year's worth of retelling mm -hmm. i think hopefully affords it 
like the nuance and care that it deserves to kind of say that, um, you know, why then it is so important. And I think for Daniel, it's because there's this profound experience of like he had a whole year with this person mm-hmm. and he even at the you know, meets Sam at 18. He's at, uh, at the cusp of starting his sophomore year of, of, of university by the novel's end. Um, I think even at 19, still being young and malleable is already so aware of um, how profound this will go on to be, like the ramifications. Right, 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 right. And, and so, you know, as as earnest and saccharine as he might be at times, I think, you know, it would be unfair to say that this is not a deeply meaningful relationship. Um, and, and so, yes, hopefully that's a nice foil to, to um, you know, uh, Romeo and Juliet deciding, like, to just commit joint suicide after 24 hours oh of gosh. being in love. Oh, my gosh, man. No, the uh, the earnestness and I, I think saccharine maybe has always has a negative most has a negative connotation. Yeah. But if it is saccharine, it's in no way negative in this book. It's mm. we get to we get to know and love the characters so much, particularly Daniel and Sam. Um, it's situated. I remember like I guess it maybe at the end of senior year, but like straight out of like the cheesiest Hollywood movie saying to like my roommate, my you know, my good friend, like like we'll always have and I don't even remember what it was, we'll always have like some inside joke, you know. Yeah, yeah. Turn, you got into the car and turned the key you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> but it's like that's the intensity of that freshman year of college mm, i think mm-hmm. is so is so singular right definitely you know i think it's a sense that like gosh you know we send these kids out into the world i got sent out into the world you got mm. sent out into the world you know like what was that sort of transitory thing that took place that magic sure. from like 17 to 18 you know literally within like time span of like a minute you know of mm. like eleven fifty nine on your seventh last 17th day of living to like yeah. your first day first minute of being 18 Mm. and but yeah like it's so intense you know and if you if you choose to go to to university or college are able to you know it's kind of like this weird um like stopgap because you're still in a lot of ways like a child you know you're often um if if it's like a residential college like you're having to live in dorms you still have someone telling you when lights are out someone is cooking your meal you probably have a meal mm-hmm. plan because your parents will be like you'll die otherwise because you'll never <laughs> remember to eat um and and everything is just so intense but like as soon as you start class like you know people are asking you like what do you think of the world and you're reading these texts and and you know you're if you're doing a politics degree like whatever sort of crazy geopolitical thing is happening you're probably being assigned readings of on it or you know if you do an english degree you're reading these heavy tomes and you're trying to apply it you know from the context of 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 the 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 culture it was written into like the the present and all of these very weighty massive things um, and so of course, like it feels so like, you know, it's, it's like you were joking, but I can totally understand why a, 
18, 19 year old you would be walking away from freshman year telling your, your roommate, like, we're going to always have this. And, yes, totally. You know, like, why, why wouldn't you? Because it just feels know. so electric. It's so alive. And, yes. and at that point in your life, it's like the most important, profound thing that will have ever happened to you. And then you get older and jaded or actually <laughs> more, more meaningful things happen. And you realize, like, that was nice. And I'll hold space for that for however long I choose to. But then other things come in and, and you, you almost get like many, um, many other stages of like evolution or, or revolution even. Yeah. Ooh, very well said. Definitely. <laughs> I love that evolution revolution. So Daniel comes in very, very innocent, very naive, mm. right? I mean, is that safe to say he meets, yes, yes. He, he meets Sam, right? Who's Sam in, in so many ways seems to be like the antithesis. Mm. Um, so like extroverted, so outgoing, um, mm -hmm. His dad had gone to this college, even though he's from yes. Orange, Orange County, right? In, in, mm -hmm, upstate, mm -hmm. in upstate New York, is that fair to say? Where the university is, yes, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah right. And just like, you know, he's a jock. He's, yes. uh, you know, got a smile from ear to ear. He's very much seemingly uh, truly himself. So Daniel's like, oh gosh, he kind of reminds me in many ways of my tormentors in, mm -hmm, in high mm -hmm. school who, you know, homophobic and, and slurs and, and just bullies. Mm -hmm. And he learns right away, and you know he becomes part of the family, part of Sam's family. They go out shopping together, go to the food court. Yes. Um, but you know, very interesting where where Daniel is offended is not the word, but that feeling where he um, where the parents of Sam you know kind of buy some stuff for him, and there mm -hmm. is a little bit of a of a trespassing, right? It it is very very nice on their part, but it's also kind of like, hey, that's maybe going a little bit too far. I wonder about like that. I'm going to say bifurcated. I don't know if that's the correct way to use it, but they kind of, <laughs> they kind of the way that the, the dilemma he has of thinking like so generous and so nice to them, but also like they don't know me. That's maybe going a little bit too far, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a sort of generous and I think very appropriate reading. And, you know, I think it was sort of like a balancing act in like the edits, both with my agent and, and my eventual editor at Tin House of like trying to get the balance to hold space, but also not make it too much of a thing. And I think in that moment for Daniel, it's not so much that like Martha, Sam's mom has overstepped, mm -hmm. but that like it's one just pragmatically has like given something to him that his parents would not be able to afford to do based on like the context we're given of, you know, um, Daniel comes from a very working-class, blue-collar immigrant family. He's there at Cayuga, totally on scholarship. But I think also is like having a bit of a wobble on that first um, uh, day with Sam, and and kind of trying to make sense of like, is is Cayuga the right fit for him? Is he right for Cayuga? You know, has he kind of has he been? been a bit naive in how far he's let dreaming take him and maybe this isn't going to work out and i think he even says something to that effect and i think really the moment in which martha hands him back his list um from their target spree and 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 shows him the things she bought i think for him is kind of um this sense of like um having yeah, again, sort of in a moment of already being really wobbly and vulnerable of like someone who just has maybe a bit of, um, for lack of a better phrase, like cultural capital that he doesn't have or his parents don't have, that she's kind of like, you know, the last thing you're going to want to do in these next few weeks is worry about like going back to Target or this or, or Walmart and like, you know, buying stuff. Like, you know, I just want you to be able to focus and like, you know, that kind of... 
um, that ability of someone's generosity can sometimes be too much, like, you know, and I think for Daniel, it's just a moment of trying to, like, be grateful, but also a bit, like, protective, because, you know, he is so grateful to Martha, but also, yeah, I think he even has that fear of, like, oh my gosh, what if she tells Sam, even just in passing, that she did this, then he's going to start thinking, like, I'm his poor roommate, and he's going to, uh -huh. like, you know, he's going to be... Uh, he's going to feel sorry for me. And, and like someone like Daniel, who's so um, cerebral, will then like go down like this spiral of thinking every time Sam, Sam is nice to me, it's because he feels sorry for me. And, and like, I think he kind of, he, I think very quickly, he's kind of pulled from like the proverbial cliff's edge. Mm -hmm. And that really happens again through, through Sam's kindness. And it's that scene when we talked about earlier about like the baseball and it's Sam sneakily going behind uh, the storage container and opening a can of Yingling for uh, for Daniel, and, and they cheers and, and they watch the rest of of, of the Giants game, and it, it's him kind of realizing that it's okay, like that people wanting to be kind to you is not an affront, or it's not this sort of it's it, like yes, it may be a vulnerable moment but it doesn't have to be like your undoing like you can learn to let people right. in and right. and i think that's sort of how then the story quickly unfurls it's about daniel not even just through sam but like rob and mona and bernie bernice and naomi it's him learning that like it's okay to let people in mm -hmm. and it's okay to need to sort of lean on other people to make it through this very new and slightly scary and completely overwhelming um, life chapter. Right, you talk about there are so many generous people, Rob and Mona. I mean, I mean, first day they're incredibly self-assured, like checking out all <laughs> yeah. the guys, guys and girls, right, and making all the, all the the quotes and in uh, all the uh, kind of jibes and. Uh, yeah, and Daniel's just like, oh shoot, I've I've arrived. Okay, I'm not you know not in Kansas anymore. Uh, he gets into a really nice routine with Sam, like you talk about. Sam has so many generous things about him, mm. feeling like he's part of the school, if not part of the school, at least part of that that dorm room right and they really mm -hmm, get along mm -hmm. well there's that really i mean cringy is not even the word is very much understated that question from the professor yes. you know where where dean is the only minority in the class right and he asked mm, him about like mm. like the civil war or something like that yes yeah so he wants like daniel's interpretation of susan laurie park's top dog underdog for those who have not read it or seen the play is like this brilliant um kind of uh riffing on um, the Civil War, but in a more contemporary retelling in which a these two um, uh, African-American brothers are living together, kind of down and outs, and one of them dresses up as Lincoln and the other one, um, mm. or yes, as Lincoln, and people get to uh, assassinate him. For money and the other one uh, is like does sleight of hands and so anyway and it is like this very important brilliant kind of uh, uh, examination if you will uh, of race politics and history within the United States um, and so yes in this moment early on in, in Daniel's experience at university this professor wants to know 
what Daniel Sattar and first misreads him as an international student right. and, and, and Daniel is very sheepish and doesn't know what to say, but at least kind of uh, clarifies that he is American. And then, uh, you know, this professor kind of continues to put his foot in his mouth by asking Daniel, um, you know, uh, well, okay, uh, then I would love to know, like, what does it align with, like, your American dream? Because, like, of course, like, you know, your family has come over from Mexico. Like, this is probably their greatest dream to get you to this elite university. And, and Daniel just shuts down. And, and so the professor moves the class on, but he's a bit annoyed with Daniel. And he tells him, you know, next time to, to actually engage. And, and yeah, I think, like, these sort of growing pains, and that's how his advisor, Naomi, explains it to him, that, you know, this is, of course, like, wholly un un unjustified, uh, like, you know, someone should not be speaking to him this way, but that, like, uh, it, you know, that she really is fighting for it to not be Daniel's undoing, you know, mm -hmm. like, these microaggressions that he deserves to be there at university, and, and it's very sort of... Um, great and, and kind of realigning Daniel's sense of self. But then, yes, at, at the end of that chapter as well, which is just the, the second full chapter that we see Daniel and Sam together, uh, Sam takes Daniel out, uh, and it's one of their other kind of celestial, astral, astrological sort of moments, and they go in and they sit out on this hill overlooking... Uh, the lake in Ithaca, yeah. New York, and there's a blood moon. And yeah, it's just, again, Daniel realizes like it's okay to let people in and that he just being this very shy person who was always kind of like a, a self-starter, I think has probably spent so much of his life trying to be self-reliant and especially in dreaming of this bigger life than maybe his parents who are immigrants or his grandfather who also lives with them maybe could ever even begin to dream. And so he feels like, well, he's brought himself here. He has to make it work. Right. And when it starts to feel like it's not working, he feels this intense pressure and it's about sort of learning early on it's okay to like accept help it's okay mm. to not always have the right answers um and to be in a position where actually you're at a point of life where you have more questions than you do answers and mm. and i think that sort of especially fall semester is daniel really kind of learning to contend with the fact that he is maybe just a few steps behind than his peers and he talks about that like rob and mona or shane rob's boyfriend like these people who seem a bit more self-assured mm -hmm. um and it's kind of as much as it's the early days of watching daniel and sam's relationship blossom i think it's also really about seeing daniel blossom into the person that's going to kind of drive the action in the second half of his year with sam Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, being a cerebral person, he's, he's thinking, he's thinking on the page, if you will, how, how do I express this openness, this love, mm -hmm. you know, for a friend and, and maybe more with, with Sam, mm -hmm, his camping mm -hmm. trip. Sam is incredibly tactile, you know, hugs yes. and, <laughs> and holds him. Right. And he's just like, he's just a uh, incredible, incredibly open and generous he also has his own his other life, if you will, with you know the soccer team and mm -hmm. and kind of like the the classic like kind of jock lifestyle, and you know Daniel as well. Daniel has his his family back home, of course, who are 
all rooting for him. His grandfather, Mm -hmm. he has a great connection with him. He's also the the namesake of his of his tio, um, right? Who Right. the his mom's brother Yes. Mm-hmm. died at like maybe in the early in his early twenties, right? Yes. Right. And so there's so much going on there as well. He feels the homesickness, but but with Sam, he feels he feels home. <laughs> Sorry to be so corny about it, right? <laughs> but um, there's also you, you mentioned um, has is a hyphenated name, but Bernice. What's the full name? Bernie Bernice. Bernie Bernice, right? And, you know, like the older queer people at the parties Yes. and the cabaret shows, and they almost like literally and figuratively take, you know, Daniel under their wing. Well, not literally, Mm they don't, they don't have wings, but, <laughs> but he, he really has such a great uh, community. You talked about Naomi, who's the, the, like the guidance counselor. No, that's -hmm. not Yes, right. his advisor. right. Yes. Advisor. Exactly. Right. Yes. And as I'm really just kind of tiptoeing now, as we kind of get into some really important plot things, I want to, I want to talk about some of the themes You mentioned, I mean, just just ideas of masculinity. Obviously, there's there's um, so much openness from from the men. There's not you you of course reference unfortunately the high school classic toxic Mm. masculinity, the the homophobia, the outright abuse. Mm. His father, his father's not a huge character in the book. We we get to know him from the telephone telephone calls, but somebody who's very open and just like, hey, do what you want to do. His grandfather as well, right? And Yes. just Daniel's not just about sexuality, but just like about living one's own free life. And there's so many cool examples of people who just are who they are. Yeah, I thought that was very important, you know, and it's not to sort of uh, be like fake news to this idea of like machismo within like the Uh-huh. Latinx sort of community or diaspora, but sort of I wanted to pay homage to the different men in my life and kind of write to a truth that I experienced and, and a kindness that I experienced from my dad or my brothers or my tios or my own grandfathers. Um, and so, yeah, it was really important, especially through the character of Abuelo, Daniel's maternal grandfather, to write to a, to someone who could be another conduit for him to con like, because when he gets to Mexico, which happens at part three. Um, so, I mean, there's four parts of the novel, but part four is very small. It's just sort of getting wrapping up sort of things at the end. So, you know, the last big chunky bit of the story is Daniel in Mexico. And I think in Mexico, he's still learning more of what it is to be his whole self. And his grandfather is someone who helps him uh, by virtue, just through like an openness and a kindness. And I think a lot of that feels true to that character because he experienced losing his only son. And I think for him, he is just so aware of not wanting to lose Daniel in any way. And so he's really trying to lay the foundations for what will be eventually Daniel's big revelation of, of his family's legacy, um, which mirrors a lot of what was happening with his time in Ithaca with, with, with Sam. And I don't want to give too much of, away, of it away, but, you know, I think it was important throughout the year, both in Ithaca and in Mexico, to show... the different possibilities of what it is to live like a full life and and by allowing that for Daniel to happen through different male characters. Obviously, grief is a big theme. I'd have to think about it for a while, but I just can't think of of anyone who is so has rendered it so well on the page. Just the idea Oh, thank of like you. what what I mean is the immediate aftermath. 
There's there some people who, you know, they, they write so well about it, but they, they kind of gloss over like, oh, in a month later, it's like you write so well about the immediate aftermath of the grief because the scream on the phone mm. and just the, I mean, alcoholism makes sense sometimes. I feel like mm. if you, mm. if you've had a mm. loss, right. Or you, you have to go somewhere with it, right. Yeah. You have to go somewhere with your grief. And who, who are we to, when he's, when he's drinking in his room, like, who are we to say that's, that's wrong or that's not human. And it's just the way that you dealt with the, the, the days after the, the phone call from the mom. I don't think, and that's, again, that's, I don't think that's part spoiling. It, no, no, it, because I, we I, see yeah. that, we see a version of it in the beginning. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, I think, you know, it was important to kind of write to, to the sort of harrowing, ugly side of grief. I didn't mm -hmm. want to sort of, um, I didn't want to move past it too quickly. I yeah. didn't want to make the ending too clean. I think we end in a hopeful place. I yeah. think there is joy and love. And I think the reader will be in a position where Daniel is going to be okay. Or we're going to, we're, you know, I think he's going to survive this. We don't know what his life will look like. But I think he has enough of the tools there. But it was really important to show those final few weeks in Mexico in a truth that kind of mirrored, I wouldn't say it was totally my experience, but it was speaking to an experience of how harrowing my own loss was at that age and how I didn't have sort of the language for it and maybe didn't turn to things always, the best coping mechanisms. Course, it's one of those books where you read it and you're, you're done, and you kind of look around like you have to get your bearings about you. You're just so <laughs> immersed, immersed in that world, mm. and it's an incredible read. 2024 is off to a, a a roaring start. Congratulations on the book. I hope you really get to enjoy the the fruits of your labor. Yeah, thank you so much. It it has been such a joy, and, and I think it will continue to be. You know, I've been really touched. Many people have reached out to me um uh in messages here and there just explaining how it kind of speaks to a grief that they have experienced and i yes. think it's just really beautiful that writing can do that and i feel really grateful that it's given people language for making sense of their own losses thank you for giving us the language to make make uh, sense of our own losses it's been a pleasure talking to you and i uh, wish you great luck with the second book and on all the above and everything in the all future. right well, thank you so much, Peter, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Awesome talking to you. All right. What a pleasure it's been to speak with Andres. Continue good luck to him with his writing and his important work. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Chills of Will podcast. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and please leave a five-star review. You can ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1, number one. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will Podcast channel. I'm very excited that starting in February with episode 220, I will have one or two podcast episodes per month featured on the website of Chicago Review of Books. Check out the newest interview published February 29th, a conversation with Andrew Leland. The audio will be posted along with a written interview cold from the audio. A big thanks to Rachel Leon and Michael Welch at the Chicago Review of Books. 
I'm so looking forward to the partnership. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. The latest episode is with Karen Uten with Dixon Descending. Dixon Descending is quite an incredible read. You're going to want to check out this latest episode. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag, cool t-shirts, and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 226 with Priscilla Gilman, author of the memoir The Anti-Romantic Child, and former professor of English literature at Yale University and Vassar College. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, O, The Oprah Magazine, and elsewhere. Her memoir, A Critic's Daughter, was released to critical acclaim in February 2023. The episode will air on March 5th. For now, thanks again for listening, and I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Andres Odorica, whose work, like How We Name the Stars, gives you chills at will. Mm-hmm.